This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States are admonished to draw near and give their attention. Landmark Cases, C-SPAN's special history series produced in cooperation with the National Constitution Center, exploring the human stories and constitutional dramas behind 12 historic Supreme Court decisions. Number 759, Ernest Miranda, Petitioner versus Arizona. We'll hear arguments in number 18, Roe against Wade. Quite often, in many of our most famous decisions, are ones that the court took that were quite uh, unpopular. Let's go through a few cases that illustrate very dramatically and visually what it means to live in a society of 310 million different people who help stick together because they believe in a rule of law. Good evening and welcome to C-SPAN's Landmark Cases, where we've been learning more about historic cases at the Supreme Court that have affected the court and affected the country. Tonight, the 1961 case of Mapp v. Ohio. It involves Dalry Mapp, an Ohio woman who refused to let the police search her house without a warrant. It's also a case that involves some backstairs intrigue at the Supreme Court itself. And all this evolved into a case that was one of a series in the Warren Courts that changed policing in America. We welcome you uh, with us this uh, program and hope you've been with us throughout the series as we've been learning so much about the Supreme Court. Let me introduce you to our two guests. And I should tell you before I do, we've actually been enjoying talking about the case a little bit on the set itself. And I think Dalry Mapp, ladies, would, would like that because she's quite a colorful character, I as we'll agree. learn. Meet Carolyn Long, who literally wrote the book on the Mapp v. Ohio case. Its subtitle is called Guarding Against Unreasonable Searches and Seizures. She's based at the Washington State University at Vancouver where she's a professor of politics, philosophy, and public affairs. Welcome to the series. Thank you for inviting me. Renee Hutchins is close by here in Washington, D.C., Maryland University, law school professor. She's co-director of the Appellate and Post-Conviction Advocacy Clinic and also a former federal prosecutor in the Justice Department's tax division. She's working on a book uh, called... Learning Criminal Procedure, a textbook. Thank you for being with us Thank tonight. You. Nice Thank you. Nice to meet you. So uh, let's start with the basic issue in this decision. What What is this case, uh, what did it ultimately become about? So what is really fascinating about the MAP case is what it started out as is not at all what it ended up as. So it, ended, it started up as a case about obscenity and pornography, and it ended up as a case about whether evidence should be admitted in state trials. Why is this a landmark decision? Well, what the decision did was it allowed this rule called the exclusionary rule, which we'll talk about, to be extended to half the states in the union. Mm -hmm. So it had, it had sweeping uh, effect on police procedures. It had a sweeping effect on how um, uh, judges would be hearing cases. And so it really hit a lot of potential cases over the decades to come, and we've seen this now. Yeah, I think I think and just to build on that, another reason why it was a landmark is because it shifted the way we thought about policing. 
Um, it shifted the professionalism of police forces. It shifted the way we thought about warrants and whether the police could just come into our homes and search for evidence if they thought that we were engaged in criminal activity. Well, to get us started, we're going to listen to some audio from the oral argument in the Supreme Court. And this is the first case in our series, and we're two-thirds of the way through it, where the court has begun recording all of its oral arguments. So this is the first time we can actually let you listen in to the argument that uh, Dalry Mapp's lawyer made before the court. Let's listen to a little bit, and then we'll come back. This Lieutenant White came and showed a piece of paper. And Mrs. Mapp demanded to see the paper and to read it, see what it was, which they refused to do, so she grabbed it out of his hand to look at it, and then a scuffle started, and she put this piece of paper into her bosom. And very readily, the police officer put his hands into her bosom and removed the paper, and thereafter handcuffed her while the police officers started to search the house. Now the evidence in the case discloses that uh, the state claims there were only seven police officers, some in uniform, uh, Mr. Green, who was there and was not permitted entrance to the house, but was kept outside, says there were approximately 12 police officers in all. Now the evidence discloses that no search warrant existed. A.L. Kearns was her attorney from the time she began legal proceedings in the state of Ohio all the way through the Supreme Court. And we'll be learning more about him and his role in the case as our program proceeds. But as we heard, uh, this deals with the Fourth, Fourth Amendment of the Constitution. So just as a refresher course, we're going to put the text of the Fourth Amendment on the screen so you understand the principles at stake here. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. And no warrant shall issue, but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. Well, a little brief constitutional history. Why was this even part of our Constitution? So for a couple of reasons. Um, prior to the founding of the nation in England, there had been these general warrants that allowed the police a lot of discretion to search people's houses and homes. And when we came over into colonial America, there were writs of assistance that allowed the police to essentially do the same thing. And um, the founders did not want that kind of unfettered police discretion, right? They wanted to rein in what the police could do. And so the language you just read says two things. It says we have the right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures. And it says that if you're going to get a warrant, you've got to base that warrant on probable cause. And you absolutely have to say specifically where you're searching and who you're looking for and what you're going to seize and what things you're going to seize. And those two clauses have been read together. So for the most part in modern history with some exceptions in more recent years. For the most part, we have said that warrantless searches are unreasonable. So if the police don't have a warrant, they haven't gone to a judge and sworn out an affidavit and said, this is where I want to search and this is what I'm looking for with some particularity, they can't search. That was the general rule. There are lots of exceptions to that rule, lots and lots and lots of exceptions to that rule. But that was the world that existed sort of prior to MAP. And, in fact, as we learned, uh, it had been applied, you must have a warrant for federal offenses, uh, but mm -hmm. only half of the states 
had said that this applies to them. So there was a discrepancy depending on what state you lived in, whether or not a warrant was needed or not. So what the Supreme Court ended up doing was resolving this by making it apply to state all states as well, correct? They did. And that, that's what Matt v. Ohio is about. But I did want to go back to writs of assistance mm-hmm. just to talk about how important they were in motivating both passage of the Fourth Amendment, but also passages right. of provisions in state constitutions. Right. So people should understand that these were open-ended warrants where customs officials and anybody who they um, deputized could go into a place of business, they can go into your home looking for smuggled goods, mm-hmm. which was a very serious problem in the colonies. And it was such a, uh, so it was egregious also because mm-hmm. customs officers would actually get money if they found the smuggled right. goods. So they had an incentive to engage in these illegal searches. And it motivated, after independence, the states to really look at provisions in their state constitutions, which closely mirror what we have in the Fourth Amendment, about the need for a warrant in some cases, but in all cases, that there be reasonableness uh, uh, re- involved in whether or not somebody engages in the search. So it really motivated passage of those provisions. Now, right. tonight, people are also going to be hearing a lot about the so-called exclusionary rule. Mm-hmm. What is that? So, At its most basic, the exclusionary rule says if the police break the law in finding the evidence, it can't be admitted in trial against you. That's the most basic rule. Again, lots of exceptions to that rule, but that's at its most basic. And because the court in weeks, when it created it, applied that rule only against the federal government, it didn't apply against the states. That's what Carolyn was talking about earlier, is that, that the states were free to essentially violate the Fourth Amendment at will, (laughs) the police officers in the states, and the evidence would still come in at trials. And so we have a map of the states that that you did not have to uh, have a warrant Mm -hmm. in 1957 when this uh, first occurred. So suffice it to say that if Dalry Map had lived in one of the states where it was applied and you needed a warrant, this case would have never come to the court. Right. Yeah, but it, was the court looking for some reason to do this? And do you think, in fact, they would have found another vehicle? That's a great question. I don't think at the time they were looking for it because, as uh, Renee said, it was clearly a case about obscenity, which we can talk about later. But I think that the nature of the search was so egregious that it really motivated the court to use it as a vehicle to extend the exclusionary rule to the states. And so it was almost too good of an opportunity to pass up. And Justice Tom Clark, who wrote the decision, had been maybe looking for, mm-hmm. for a vehicle because he had uh, decided a case where he had a he had uh, written a concurring opinion in a case that he didn't circulate where he sort of was feeling it out in his mind about whether or not a case called Wolfie, Colorado yeah. should actually be reversed. So a good vehicle um, was provided with Matt, but it was something that was on the court's mind. So one of the premises behind this series when we first thought about it was that there are interesting people stories behind the cases that make their way to the Supreme Court. And if you've been watching, you see they've been people of all kinds, from secretaries of state all the way through uh, to just ordinary folks. I think Dowry is definitely in the category of just ordinary folk. <laughs> but when she died, one newspaper headline called her the Rosa Parks of the Fourth Amendment. Mm-hmm. Right. You met Dowry Mapp in researching your book. Would you put her on the same plane as Rosa Parks? I, I would. I think she was a more colorful character than Rosa Parks, which is why I think uh, that quote is so um, apt. But she was a fighter. She really was mm-hmm. somebody who, who was very confident. She was uh, described as arrogant by some, but she knew that she had been wronged by this extensive search of her home and that she had been targeted by the police. And she really wanted to fight this case in mm-hmm. court. And a lot of people say, I'm going to take my case all the way to the Supreme Court, and very few make it. But 
in meeting Dalry, you knew she was going to get to the Supreme Court. She just had that, she had that confidence, and she knew that this was something that she had to, to really to see the courts decide. Okay, so she was from Shaker Heights, Ohio, mm-hmm. which is a fairly affluent suburb mm-hmm. of Cleveland, east of Cleveland. So tell us the basic parameters of her story and the crime that was alleged to have been com- sure. committed and how this case got started. So it's, it's important to note where she lived, actually, because this is a young African-American woman. She has a, a, a single daughter. She was uh, married and divorced uh, Jimmy Bivens, who was a great boxer. He was he defeated mm-hmm. eight world uh, uh, um, champions, but he never had a title fight. She had been engaged to Archie Moore, who was a uh, heavyweight fighter himself. Um, and so she was very familiar to the boxing scene. And part of that scene um, was uh, illegal gambling operations. And in Cleveland, like in many cities, um, they had something called a policy game where people would engage in almost a daily lottery for small bits of money. And Dalry was sort of in the periphery of that world and knew people who were involved in, in illegal gambling. And so um, what led to the case, actually, was the fact that, that others who were involved in illegal gambling, um, most notably Donald the Kid, the kid King, King. <laughs> Donald the Kid King, um, uh, had his front porch bombed um, by people who were trying to shake him down because they were trying to uh, get money from him, uh, uh, as well as other people who were involved in, in the gaming business. And what happened was there was a confidential informant who said that there was somebody who was involved in the bombing in Dalry Mapp's home, as well as possibly evidence of gambling paraphernalia. And so the police went to her house. First, they gently requested that she let them in. She said that she wouldn't. She was yelling out of her uh, uh, window, talking Uh to them, saying that they needed to have a search warrant. Um, They went back and allegedly got a search warrant. Uh, After a couple of hours, they came back. They pried open the door of her home. At the time, she was descending down her stairs, waved a piece of paper um, at the police officers. And as Kern said in the piece that we heard earlier, um, there was a tussle over that. And she was handcuffed Mm -hmm. first uh, and sat on a bed, then on a banister, at one point handcuffed to a police officer. And they were allegedly looking for a bombing suspect, which they found within the first few minutes of the search. But then they engaged in a search for about three hours of her home and also her basement where she had borders and every room of the house Mm -hmm. inside of compartments in her house. Um, They eventually found some gambling paraphernalia in the basement. And they also found some uh, books that were allegedly obscene and some pencil drawings in her bedroom that were also allegedly obscene. So they arrested her primarily on the the gambling charge Mm -hmm. with the paraphernalia. Um, and then later it turned into a charge about the um, the obscene material. Okay, so I, I just so people make sure they got the connection, Donald the King. Yes. The Kid uh, King. The kid, Don, Don the, the Kid King. King. Just in, in later <coughs> life, many, many Americans got to know him as Don King, the guy with the crazy hair yeah, right. that was a big <coughs> boxing promoter. Yes. And Dalry uh, was part of that whole boxing circle in Ohio right. during that time. Now, there, uh, the Cleveland Police Department had a Bureau of Special Operations Investigations. They did. Uh, would you talk a little bit about 1957 and this youth? unit within the police department and whether or not there was tension between it and the African-American community. Yeah, so there absolutely was. And that was one of the things that Mm -hmm. I wanted to to build on when Carolyn was talking is when we talk about what happened to Dalry today, it ends up being a little bit sterile and a little bit removed Mm -hmm. from, I think, probably what would have been a very scary experience for a single mother at home in a house that is being laid siege upon by police officers. So when the police officers first come, Mm -hmm. they do sort of yell up to her very politely, 
we need to come in. She says, why? They don't tell her. But then they didn't go away. They actually laid wait around her house. She couldn't leave. She couldn't exit her home at all. She's on the phone with her lawyer. Her lawyer shows up. They don't let her lawyer in the house. Um, And then as she's coming down the stairs, the police are breaking in her back door. And when you think about what kind of an experience that must have been for this woman and the, the bureau that was the special bureau, the police force that was coming into her house was a bureau that was sort of notorious for um, policing very aggressively members of the black community. They routinely went into homes without warrants. They routinely engaged in behavior that violated the Fourth Amendment with regard to the urban population in Cleveland um, and as well as in Shaker Heights. Um, And so I I think that that's sort of an important piece of it to remember. You know, if you were in your home and a, a, a police force enters your home, doesn't allow your lawyer to talk to you, and handcuffs you to a bed, reaches down your clothing, sort of goes into your clothing to get a supposed warrant, which the police later admitted wasn't actually a warrant at all. Um, so they physically assault you and then handcuff you to your bed. It's just, I think that the 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 trauma that she must have felt as a result of that experience ends up getting underplayed. Would the police say that, uh, that yes, she was a single mom with, with a child, but at the same time she was part of the boxing community? Uh, there was a suspicion of numbers running the policy right. games in her world. She already had a lawyer, uh, so she's had some experience with the law. She'd been married to a boxer. So was she someone, in fact, that was known to the police? It wasn't entirely a first-time innocent sort of situation? It, it wasn't. She was well-known. And um, not to say that it excuses, of course, law enforcement's behavior in this case, but um, she had been stopped and questioned by police before, and she was well-known as somebody who might be involved in illegal operations. Um, so it, it probably was not a surprise to her that the police showed up. But I do think what Renee said is really important, not only about how she felt individually, but what was happening in Cleveland. Um, and that, that is that this Bureau of Special mm-hmm. Investigations really was aggressive. And even years later, when I spoke to Carl DeLau, who was the, mm-hmm. the lead sergeant, he said we were aggressive, mm-hmm. that we constantly um, uh, engaged in searches without a warrant. And it was commonplace. Right. And, and there was no reason for them not to, as we'll talk about, because that evidence that they were found could be excluded. Right. But it's also important to know that the Bureau really did target communities of color because if you looked at where the numbers game or the policy Mm -hmm. game was happening, they were in communities of people with lower socioeconomic status. And in Cleveland at the time, it was predominantly African-American communities. And so you have that targeting of those communities. Um, and then you have the police using strategies like intimidation, giving them the third degree, mm-hmm. um, arresting people so that they then have to be in court, uh, right. which means that they're not engaging in, in illegal behavior, confiscating material. Um, and so they used a number of uh, strategies to try to attack what they saw as a real pervasive problem in the community, which was illegal gambling. So can I, uh, can I just add one very point? Briefly, though, very briefly. Very briefly. So I, just, I don't want to paint Dalry with too rosy a brush, um, yeah. but... The lawyer that she had was not as a result of any criminal case. Mm-hmm. It was a civil lawyer that she had hired to help her with some civil matter. Um, so it's not at all clear to me that she was sort of on the fringes of any criminal element. She knew them. Certainly she was dating a couple of guys right. who were involved. <laughs> um, but I, I, I don't know that it's fair to sort of suggest that she was a repeat player in this mm-hmm. world and therefore was appropriately right. targeted by the police. Okay, so we're going to hear the next part of the story from the perspective of the Cleveland Police Department. (laughs) 
Um, this case, in fact, is part of their history. And in the Cleveland Police Museum, they have a display about it. We went to visit it. We'll show you that next. You're currently looking at two documents, three pages. Uh, one is what we call our daily duty report. And it, it describes what the police officers working together on that particular date did during their tour of duty. Uh, the second document, consisting of two pages, is actually the uh, arrest report of Dowry Map and a guy by the name of Virgil Ogletree. And they're, to the best of my knowledge, the only existing documents uh, left from this particular investigation. We're looking at the arrest report of Dowry Map and it, uh, it details what happened on the evening of, of May 23, 1957. Sergeant Dallau talks about the fact that he had received information from a confidential informant uh, that there was someone inside of uh, the residence at 14705 Milverton uh, who was involved in, in a bombing that had taken place at the residence of Donald King. Uh, and based upon this information, they went out to set up surveillance on the address and. Uh, while there, they attempted to get into the home and they were denied access. So then according to the report, uh, Lieutenant Thomas White uh, left the scene and went downtown and uh, obtained a search warrant. Uh, with the warrant in their possession, uh, they then gained entrance to the house and it was uh, at that time that they secured Dowry Map and they began a search of the premises. And just to, as a side note, um, they mention the fact that they obtained a search warrant in the arrest report, but if you look at their daily duty report, they also specifically mention in there that one of the officers went downtown and obtained a search warrant and then returned to Dowry Maps residence before they gained entrance. And for reasons that we may never know, uh, the search warrant was never presented at the time of trial and never ended up at the Supreme Court during the arguments there. I don't believe the officers ever had any idea that this arrest and this search was going to end up in the U.S. Supreme Court. You're listening to C-SPAN's Landmark Cases. We will be back in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So what's your reaction? Well, it's remarkable <laughs> years later how uh, there's still a story that there was a search warrant. Uh, there wasn't one. And Carl DeLau knew that when he wrote the report, as I wrote in my book. Um, what they had was an affidavit for a search warrant. And what he said is that he hadn't examined it closely um, uh, when they engaged in the search and when they detained Alri. Uh, but they knew pretty much after she had been arrested that there was no search warrant, yet Throughout the entire lower court history, up until the case reached the United States Supreme Court, they insisted that there was a warrant, but they, they didn't have it available and nobody had found it. Um, and so the lie was perpetuated, and, and you sort of see that not only in the report, but also in the retelling of it here. Yeah. So to her case, she was, as you mentioned, she was originally arrested on gambling charges because mm -hmm. they found some paraphernalia, but those charges were dropped. Yes. And then days later, she was charged on the obscenity, obscene mm -hmm. material. 
That was a serious charge in Ohio. It was. And actually, she was acquitted of the policy uh, charge. And so she was, uh, it went to trial. It went to trial in a limited, a court of limited jurisdiction, mm-hmm. essentially a police it's court. A trial. Mm-hmm. And she was, she was acquitted because the, the material is far away from her, obviously. Um, and then over the weekend, the officers actually went and they uh, um, went through uh, an arrest report, mm-hmm. and they decided and she was to, indicted on the they indicted her on the obscenity charge. charge. Yeah. And in Ohio State, if one is convicted of uh, violating the law, the sentence is one to seven years and a, like a two thousand mm-hmm. dollar fine. And it was a felony. It was a felony, yes. very serious charge. And so after she was arrested and indicted, then it went to a grand jury. Yeah. Uh, they quickly decided that um, it should go to trial, and it went to trial sometime mm-hmm. later, almost a year later. And she was so nineteen fifty seven. Uh, how many? Well, I'm not going to say how many states, but what were the norms about obscenity in the country at that time in a general Uh, sense? So I think that one of the things that tells you a little bit about that time period is what Dalry did with the search warrant when the police come into her house. Right. It tells you something about the modesty of that era and 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 our views about um, women and femininity and all that. So when Dalry, when the police come into her house and she snatches the affidavit out of the officer's hand, she shoves it down her blouse as if that would somehow protect Mm -hmm. the police from ever again getting it because there was this sense of that was protected and modest. And if it was in her bosom, it was protected, which spills over into the obscenity laws, right? That there's this notion that things that are visually... um, pornographic or that are depictions of nude bodies are offensive and should not be seen in the, you know, by decent common people. Um, and that was a pretty widely held view. How would these, these materials be to our standards today? You've seen them. Yeah, very modest. Uh, <laughs> yes. The, the, there was a pencil drawing that depicted an, a sexual act and the books themselves or something that you might see in a high school. Not that, that right. I would recommend it, but that might happen. But what's important to note, and, and, and Renee's sort of speaking about this with her point, is that the, the law around obscenity was sort of not quite settled at this time. Mm-hmm. The Supreme Court had only decided two cases, yeah. a case in 1957 called Roth v. U.S., where the court was trying to determine the proper standard to evaluate right. what was obscene. And then also a case in 1959 called Smith v. California, which uh, dealt with the possession of potentially obscene material by booksellers. And in that particular case, which is important for the obscenity case for Mm -hmm. MAPS uh, um, charge, uh, they said it was unconstitutional to prohibit the possession of potentially obscene material if it might be sold. And so there wasn't a lot of law around obscenity. And so what is considered obscene and how it might be decided by the courts was really unsettled, which is Mm -hmm. one reason why I think it also went to the Supreme Court. So why was the time between her arrest and the trial so long? And did she, where was she at that time? So she was out on bail the whole time. Uh, But this is Cuyahoga County. And Mm -hmm. so it's a very busy general court. And so because you've got a, a, a very large urban area, it just took a long time for cases to move through the system. Initially, uh, Kearns, her lawyer, wanted her to plea out and take a plea mm-hmm. bargain deal so that she could avoid jail time, and she adamantly refused. She wanted her day in court. And then he tried to negotiate a plea on her behalf without her knowing. It would have infuriated right. her if she had found out. Um, but that didn't go through because the prosecution didn't right. want it. So everybody wanted that case to go to trial, it seems. Um, so it took a long time just because of the crowded court mm-hmm. system. So next, you're going to hear our only piece of video that has Dalry Mapp in her own words. But before we do that, I want to tell you about how we'd like you to participate. We hope you'll call in with questions or comments about this case. 
And you can do it by uh, dialing these numbers. It's divided geographically. If you live in the eastern or central time zones, 202-748-8900. If you live in the mountain or Pacific time zones, 202-748-8901. And please dial that carefully to get uh, to our studio here. And we'll get your questions in line as they come along. You can also tweet us. Please use the hashtag Landmark Cases. And if you go to C-SPAN's Facebook page, there's already a, a, a conversation underway about this case, and you can join that. We'll mix in a few Facebook comments as well as we proceed. So next up, this is uh, Dolly Mapp. You'll meet her. She was called Dolly by most of her friends. This is from Annenberg's Public Policy Center documentary that was produced on the case. Most of my friends called me Dolly. Very few called me Dolly. I had to care of myself. I'm not going to sit down and let you know you run over me. I felt good. I knew there was something that I should do. And I did everything that I knew how. And I felt that I had been treated wrong. If the search was illegal, then you got the law on your side. And you say that when you met her, she still had that determination oh, absolutely. at the age of 91. So how did she find Lawyer Kearns? Well, she had, as Renee mentioned earlier, she lawyer. had him uh, for a civil case. She uh, So he was a civil lawyer that went all the way to the Supreme Court? He was actually, her. no, he was a criminal defense lawyer, yeah. but she had him for a civil, she, she had an action for breach of um, uh, promise against Archie Moore, her former uh, the man she was engaged mm-hmm. to. And so she had secured him for that reason. Um, so he was doing both, which which is common yeah. for some at that time lawyers. At that certainly, time, certainly, yeah. yeah. And would it have been the only case he ever argued before the Supreme Court? Almost certainly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so she went to trial and was found guilty for possession of the obscene literature. Right. And then that carried with it what penalties? And how did, how did it proceed to the next stage of the legal system? Up to seven years in, in prison and then also a $2,000 fine. Um, the case was upheld on appeal in the intermediate mm-hmm. appellate court. And then when it went to the Ohio Supreme Court, they also affirmed her conviction. But what they also did is they looked at the constitutionality of that law um, that dealt with obscenity. Mm-hmm. And four of the seven justices on the Ohio Supreme Court said that they believed that the law was unconstitutional, that it was overbroad. Right. Um, and uh, that it should be struck down for that reason as well as her conviction. But in Ohio, under the state constitution, you need a super, super majority to strike down a law as unconstitutional. Six of the seven justices had to determine that it was unconstitutional for it to be struck down. So it was a a unique Mm -hmm. quirk in the constitution. We don't see this often. And so it was actually upheld, even though a majority, four of the seven justices, thought it was unconstitutional, so her conviction stood. Um, The issue of the search also was addressed in the in the case. And the court was concerned about the search being illegal, um, admittedly illegal, actually. Uh, but there was a uh, Ohio state precedent called State versus Lindway, mm-hmm. which said that in the state of Ohio, illegally seized evidence could still be admitted to criminal trial, which is why in Ohio, like the other half of the states and the unions that didn't have the exclusionary rule, you would still have police engaging right. in searches without warrants. So we have our first caller, and appropriately from Cleveland. Uh, this is Shan watching us there. You're on the air. Uh, yes, thank you so much, these families, uh, taking my call. Uh, I live very close to the uh, home there, and I was I was amazed. I've heard of this case before. I mean, but I didn't know it was in Cleveland. I thought it was in another city. And my question is, how relevant is this case today? Is is it still being used in court cases? We have a case right now where this uh, uh, in Cleveland going on right now, and uh, sort of similar to this. And I just want to know: is it still relevant and being used today? Thank you. Thank you, sir. 
So the short answer is yes. It is used all the time in courts routinely. So every time a suppression motion is filed in any criminal case, um, it is Matt versus Ohio that allows a state court judge to rule that that evidence is not admissible. It has been cut back a lot because of restrictions on the exclusionary rule, but it is still very much in force. Mm-hmm. Andre is in Columbia, Maryland. You're on the air. Hi, Andre. Uh, good evening. Uh, my question for your guest is, since the decision in Weeks and Matt, and the Supreme Court has hollowed out a, a bunch of exceptions, hasn't these exceptions weakened the meaning of the decisions of Weeks and Matt today? Thanks very much. Absolutely. I think that's one of the, the real tragedies here is the way MAP was decided, um, the argument that was before the court was uh, about the issue of excluding the evidence. But the basis for the decision was that it was constitutionally required mm-hmm. to exclude illegally seized evidence. And um, that that uh, the underpinnings of MAP have been have been eaten away, as Renee yeah. suggested, over the years, so that right now the way that they, they look at the exclusionary rule is very differently than when they did before. Mm-hmm. Right now the, the court looks at whether or not the rule would actually deter police misconduct. Right. And by looking at whether it would deter police misconduct rather than the fact that it's constitutionally required, it's allowed for a, a tremendous number of exceptions to the rule. So it's almost as if the foundation of MAP mm-hmm. has been eroded um, after the decision by the way the court is constructing the questions before it. So we next have a call from Vancouver, Washington. This is Stuart, who's watching us there. Hi, Stuart, you're on the air. Yes, uh, I have a question for the the speakers here. Uh, Because it's such a controversial court case and it deals with a very sensitive issue, search and seizures, how would you guys say, um, how would you see that the the precedent being applied in, let's say, a court, uh, a court case or a Supreme Court, how would be, how would it be applied uh, today? Because we know we see the court working in cycles, the Butler case, the Rancourt courts, where they kind of don't like to follow rules, and they like to apply different precedences. So I'd just like to know what people would think, how they would apply it, uh, let's say, if, let's say, um, it would come up today in today's court. Okay, thanks. Renee Hutchins. So I think that what Carolyn was saying is exactly right. So the way that it's being applied today is much more restrictively than it was being applied when it was first announced. And so the court, when it first announced the exclusionary rule, said, look, when, when evidence is illegally obtained and courts engage in admitting that evidence and allowing convictions based upon that evidence, that affects judicial integrity. And we want to def- deter bad police conduct. And in more recent years, the only justification for the rule that we're seeing is the deterrence rationale. And that is a, you know, that really only restricts reckless police behavior, Mm -hmm. intentional police behavior, knowingly negligent police behavior. It's a much narrower swath of police behavior that actually is being affected by the the exclusionary rule today. Kathy Balin uh, asks on Twitter, prior to MAP, Mm-hmm. Did states assist the feds in searches since they could do it without a warrant? Oh, yes. <laughs> so the Weeks decision actually is the the decision back in 1914 where the exclusionary rule gets announced for the first time. And in Weeks, there was a gentleman named Fremont Weeks that the, the uh, federal government and the state government thought was violating the law, I believe, with regard to gambling. Um, and so the state police went in initially and searched Weeks's home. They actually, the neighbors told them where the key was for Weeks's home. They go into his house, they search, they find some stuff. The police officers, state police officers, then turn that over to the U.S. Marshal. 
And then the U.S. Marshal, along with the state police, troops back over to Weeks' home and, and they search again. And um, so in that sense, yes, police officers were state and federal were very much working together in, in, in a, cooperative, a cooperative spirit <laughs> to ensure that um, federal convictions were had based on evidence the state police were seizing. Well, along with that, Warbo on Twitter wants to know, can you discuss law enforcement tools for parallel construction, allowing illegal evidence to, to find a path to legal evidence? And so... Yes, um, in a couple of different ways. So the primary way that we see this is, for example, in the Miranda context, when um, there has been a violation of someone's Miranda rights, uh, you know, the standard rights that you hear on every evening talk show. You have the right to remain silent. You have the right to an attorney. If you can't afford an attorney, one will be afforded for you. Um, if the police violate your Miranda rights but discover physical evidence as a result of that Miranda violation, that physical evidence can be admitted. So in that sense, yes, there are some constitutional violations that can happen that result in other evidence that is allowed in. Okay, so let's back up a bit to go forward. Yeah. On March 23rd, 1960, four of seven Ohio Supreme Court justices voted to reverse Dowry Mapp's lower mm -hmm. court loss. Uh, uh, but she lost that appeal because there's a technicality in Ohio law that it, a supermajority was required. Mm -hmm. So how did we get from there to the Supreme Court? What's the, what's the route? Sure. Uh, well, whenever there's a federal question, you can appeal to the U.S. Mm -hmm. Supreme Court by uh, filing a petition for writ of certiorari. And that is what Kearns did. Mapp wanted to, to take it as far as she could. And so he filed for a petition of a writ mm -hmm. of certiorari before the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, and as we were talking about earlier, obscenity was an issue that the court was exploring quite tentatively. Right. Um, so it caught their eye. And we look back to the records of uh, Earl Warren and Tom Clark, and we find that uh, eight of the nine justices on the court granted the writ of certiorari. Mm -hmm. So they really wanted to hear this case. The one holdout was Justice Felix Frankfurter. And what's fascinating about Frankfurter is he wrote a decision called Wolf v. Right. Colorado. And in Wolf v. Colorado, Frankfurter did something really remarkable, which is he declared, using what we call the incorporation doctrine, that the Fourth mm -hmm. Amendment was a fundamental freedom, um, duly of as much protection as possible. Part but of the ordered liberties of being an American. The concept of yes. ordered liberty. Um, but he also then said in this next uh, paragraph that the exclusionary rule, which he called mm -hmm. a remedy, which was judicially uh, created, could not be extended to the states. He didn't find merit in that idea. And so Felix Frankfurter didn't want to hear this case. He was famous for not wanting to rehear his decisions. Yeah. Um, but eight of the nine justices granted review. So if you're watching us live on this program, we want to welcome our C-SPAN audience who is joining us in progress for our decision, our, our discussion, rather, of the, of the Supreme Court decision, Map v. Ohio, involving the case of Dalry Map of Shaker Heights, Ohio, who was arrested under an obscenity charge in Ohio and took her case all the way to the Supreme Court. It ended up being a case about of searches without warrants and became a landmark case. We welcome your participation in this discussion. We've just joined it where the case is making its way to the Supreme Court, and this is the Warren Court. This is not our first Warren Court case, but it's a, of a different type. And a couple have, of justices have joined since our last landmark case. The new faces on the court, John Harlan, Potter Stewart, and Charles Whitaker. Can either of you talk about how the dynamics of the court have changed with these three new justices? Where are the factions? 
So uh, at the court at this time, what you had was the liberal uh, mm -hmm. uh, branch of the court, led by the Chief Justice Earl Warren and joined by Justice William Brennan, William Douglas, and Hugo Black. And then you had the conservative side of the court, right. which would include the newcomers, um, Harlan Whitaker, whom you mentioned, and Felix Frankfurter. And then you had Tom C. Clark, who was somebody who sometimes went between the two camps mm -hmm. of both liberal and conservative. Um, Tom C. Clark was actually a U.S. Attorney General. He worked um, on the Korematsu case, which the series has already talked about. He was involved in the exclusion orders, right. working with Earl Warren at the time. Um, he's a Truman appointee, but very interested in civil rights issues um, and also interested in anti-communism. So he was a little bit all mm -hmm. over the map. So you had sort of a four justices who we would characterize as liberal or some would call mm -hmm. them judicial activism. Those things are often different. And then uh, four who were more conservative, more interested in judicial restraint. And then Clark, who went between the two. Right. So who wrote MAP. And who wrote MAP, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. we are going to hear next from Dalry MAP's attorney. We've talked about him, A.L. Kearns. But before we do, uh, how did she have enough money to pursue this? This is not an inexpensive thing to be taking these cases through the legal system. Right. I, she didn't. She, she didn't. She had, she had an, yeah. an unnamed benefactor yeah. um, from the beginning, and, and it cost about $8,000 mm -hmm. to go to the Supreme Court, and she had somebody who sent her money, which helped her in her legal defense. And I tried very hard to get a name out of her, but I was unable to do so. So next, from the oral argument in the Supreme Court, and for those just joining us, this is the first case in our landmark series where we actually can hear hear the audio of the actual oral arguments from the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court began a taping system which it maintains to this day to tape all their oral arguments. So here is Mr. Kearns making his argument to the Supreme Court in the 1961. Here is a woman who is lawfully in her own home. She's not exhibiting anything like this. She's not trying to sell it. She's not doing anything, assuming that they did find it in her home. The sentence imposed upon her is one to seven years for exercising, let us say, her right to look at a book that she shouldn't look at, to have in her possession a book that she shouldn't have. Not that she's a criminal, not that she has a formal record, but one to seven years imposed upon her for daring to have a book of this sort in her home. So as you can hear, very important, that was a First Amendment argument being made to the justices on the Supreme Court. Next, we're going to hear from the other side. Who argued the case for Ohio? Uh, Gertrude Mahan. She had been and a, who was she? She was a longtime prosecutor. She was about 52 mm -hmm. years old, and she was really a pioneer in the legal profession. Um, so this wasn't her first case. And here's a bit of the recording of her oral argument making the Ohio side of the case. Ohio does not follow the exclusionary rule. And this court has held that the state has a right to, and it is not in violation of the 14th Amendment, to so admit evidence, even though obtained without a search warrant. So, Renee Hutchins, what we're hearing there is the warrant side rather mm -hmm. than the obscenity side. How did Ohio focus this case? So, Ohio was arguing, I, I think, probably on fairly strong ground that in light of Wolf and, and the Lindaway decision, that it didn't matter whether the search was illegal, that, that really what the justices should be focused on was the obscenity piece, not the warrant piece, because 
who who really cared if the police went in without a warrant or with a warrant? Who really cared if they violated the Fourth Amendment going in? Because the Fourth Amendment did not apply in terms of the exclusionary rule to the states at that time. And this was a state prosecution. Mm -hmm. So why did it matter? So the specific question before the court in Map v. Ohio was a singular one. We're going to show you that to you next. And this is what the, the case was purported to look at uh, when it went to the court. It was, the question before the court uh, was, were the confiscated materials found in Map's home protected by the First Amendment? As we learned, the case took a very different twist and had a very different outcome. And after a few calls, we're going to learn about the intrigue at the court that changed the direction of this case. Let's hear next from Greg, who's watching us in Providence, Utah. Hi, Greg, you're on the air. Uh, yes, um, I have a question about uh, how MAP applies to the bulk collection data, bulk collection of NSA data. I, I first thought you think it might apply. Thank you very yeah, much. The point. Uh, yep, we understand the question. So warrantless wiretapping uh, of, of data, personal data, has been a big issue. Uh, for the past decade. So does MAP apply to that? So MAP would be different because the NFA, NSA is a federal agency, and so it would be covered anyway under the week's decision. Um, wiretapping, for the most part, is covered by Title III, so there's statutes that really govern the collection of data across wirelines. Um, although the Fourth Amendment is relevant, it would really be the statutory piece. Ed is watching us in Danbury, Connecticut. Hi, Ed. Uh, hi. Uh, could you comment on the uh, life of the decision uh, outside the courts, say in the popular media? For example, uh, police crime dramas uh, often show uh, uh, the need for a warrant as an obstacle to uh, to getting to justice, and they paper over or they weaken or not, they, they kind of ignore that requirement. Sure. Do you think that uh, shows are trying to, to sway public opinion, or um, is it reflecting public opinion, or... How do you look at it? All right. Thanks. Interesting question, because mm -hmm. when we get to Miranda, there's a big social component to right. it. So did this case make its way into the popular culture? It, it has, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I think with Miranda, mm -hmm. uh, fortunately, because people are familiar with their rights. But with the exclusionary rule, we have police serials to blame for people misunderstanding how it works. In law and order, any type of uh, police show, mm -hmm. usually you have a situation where there's evidence, it's been obtained illegally, it's excluded from trial, and a serial murderer goes free. Right. And so people have this impression that the suppression of evidence, which has been gotten by Ill, uh, illegal means, has led to, to criminals being released from prison, when a lot of very good social science research has been done on the exclusionary rule. And what we find is that not it has led to, obviously, more motions right. uh, to suppress the evidence. But when it's actually used, um, rarely does it lead to what we call non-conviction. Usually right. people are, are convicted of the crime anyway. And in the cases where there was somebody who wasn't convicted, we're talking about very low-level crimes, usually drug possession, perhaps gun possession. Um, and one scholar found that usually the sentences were under a year. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't make for a great television show to have somebody have a minor possession of drugs charged right. dropped and have them go free. Instead, these tall tales and this mystique about these uh, 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 criminals running the streets because of this rule is what's been perpetuated in the mass media. There's also, I think, this really fabulous, I'm going to read it very quickly, I promise. There's this notion that criminals are going free because of the exclusionary rule, but I think that there's another side of it that we really have to always consider, and, and the language that the court used in MAP was this, the criminal goes free if he must, but it is the law that sets him free. 
Nothing can destroy a government more quickly than its failure to observe its own laws or worse, its disregard of the charter of its own existence. Our government is the potent, the omnipresent teacher. For good or for ill, it teaches the whole people by its example. If the government becomes a lawbreaker, it breeds contempt for the law. It invites every man to become a law unto himself. It invites anarchy. And I think that that really is at the core of the exclusionary rule and something we shouldn't forget. Larry in Englewood, Colorado. Hi, Larry. Good evening, Susan. Thank you for another uh, great episode. I wonder, this case originated in Ohio, and given the era... It would almost be less surprising if I'd heard that it came from the South. Did racism play into this uh, uh, case uh, uh, as much as it seems to from watching the episode? Thanks very much. Renee, you talked about that earlier, so let me let me turn to Carolyn for a review well, on that. I, I think race played a role in the sense that the Bureau of Special Investigations was aggressively going after um, a vice crime, which was predominantly in an area where there were a, a larger mm-hmm. number of African Americans. Um, and so I do think it played a role. And I think that even Carl DeLau would say it played a role mm-hmm. because he would say, we went where the crime was. And if it just happened to be in this community, right. uh, so be it. And so I think that, in addition to how MAP was treated by the police, um, really shows that race was an issue here. And we have to remember that this was happening in the late 50s. MAP v. Ohio was decided in 1961. So really, the issue of racism in communities and aggressive police tactics are not unique to the South. They were happening throughout the country, and these problems, of course, persist today. Next up is Josh, who's watching us in Algona, Iowa. Hi, Josh. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Uh, My question was, in recent years, how has the Supreme Court curtailed the MAP v. Ohio ruling? Okay, thanks. That's one question. I'm going to wait until the last segment when we talk about uh, its legacy in the court. Thanks for asking it, Josh. I'm going to entice you to stay with us for another (laughs) about half an hour so we can get an answer for you. Next up, Ron in Austin, Texas. Hi, Ron. Hi, this is Ron Weddington. Uh, I'm a lawyer of 44 years and practicing in Texas and in federal courts, Roe versus Wade, among others. But uh, I'm just wondering if, if y'all are aware that, that, that every big city has a judge sitting by all night who rubber stamps the uh, search warrants. I mean, they, co- they just come in and the do- cop swears to whatever. And the judge signs his name, and then, then the you know the search is becomes presumably legal. Do you do are you aware of that happening, or is that not? Texas is kind of bad, but <laughs> but uh, it must be. I'm sure it's the case in other other cities. Well, thank you. Did that happen as a result of MAP when search warrants were required at the state level? So certainly there are judges who sign off and rubber stamp um, affidavits for search warrants and issue search warrants. The beauty of what MAP did, though, was it allowed that record to be reviewed in suppression hearings. And so by by allowing evidence to be excluded from state trials, a, a reviewing court could then decide whether the judge, in fact, rubber stamped and shouldn't have. Okay, last call for right now from uh, Linda in Minneapolis. Hi, Linda, you're on. 
Hello. Thank you for taking the call. I have a question that I just don't understand this exactly. If the Fourth Amendment was um, was uh, from the federal government, central government, uh, guaranteeing uh, rights to legal search and seizure to American citizens, how could any state uh, abridge those rights? I don't understand. It doesn't. Doesn't the federal government uh, supersede state laws and state what states do? I'm I'm confused. <laughs> okay, so um, it is rightfully confusing. So the Constitution at the time it was created was seen as a check on federal government because it was federal government that we were most afraid of at that time. We were not particularly concerned about state governments. And so the first eight amendments to the Constitution are seen or were seen as um, limitations or constraints on the federal government. It wasn't until the 14th Amendment was passed and the court began to selectively incorporate, that's what they called it, some pieces of those first eight amendments into uh, the 14th Amendment so that they functioned as a limitation on state governments that we then saw both limitations on the federal and state governments. And this is how our landmark cases are all starting to fit together. (laughs) Uh, So we said there was some intrigue at the court. The the, The oral argument happened on March 29th. 1961. The next stage in the process, for people who don't understand the card, is, is judicial conference, where the mm-hmm. justices go into a closed room, no, uh, uh, their, none of their clerks are allowed, and they discuss the case. That happened a very short time later, March 31st. What happened in that conference? Right. So Potter Stewart wrote a, a law review article where he says what he thought was that a rump caucus occurred between the time the case was heard and, and the co- time the case was decided because the issue had been transformed so much. Mm-hmm. And um, the rump caucus uh, uh, conference uh, happened, a uh, rump caucus? Rump caucus. Caucus. <laughs> happened in an elevator. So what happened after the conference is Tom Clark, who wrote the MAP decision, was in an elevator with William Brennan and Mm -hmm. Hugo Black. And he turned to them and he said, I think that this might be a good case to overturn this decision in Wolf v. Colorado. Um, And the reason why he said that was when they met in conference to originally talk about the case, the whole issue of the obscenity clause dominated the conversation. Mm -hmm. All nine justices said this this obscenity statute is unconstitutional, violates the First and Fourteenth Amendment. But Justice Douglas sort of raised the issue as to whether or not this illegal search and the circumstances Mm -hmm. of this case were such that this would be a really good vehicle to revisit that decision in Wolf Colorado. So Tom Clark was thinking about this as he left the conference, and that's when he sort of introduced the idea to Bill Brennan and to Hugo Black. And they sort of said, are you serious about this? And he was like, yeah, I think so. So he had really been thinking about turning this into a Fourth Amendment question. They said, are you serious, but also indicated that they might be persuaded if he took it that direction. Absolutely. And so so you, he was beginning to count noses as to whether yes. or not if he went in that way, yes. he would prevail. Right. So when, when Douglas raised the issue in conference, Earl Warren and William Brennan, so now we have three, mm-hmm. provided support for this position that we could use this case as right. a vehicle to overturn Wolfie um, uh, Colorado. And Douglas hated a wolf because he dissented from it. That's so correct. He- Correct. Yeah. Um, and then if you had Clark, suddenly you have four votes. And so the, the, right. the holdout was Justice Black, who didn't oppose the idea, but he also didn't jump on board. Right. And ba- Justice Black was sort of a tricky fellow when it came to incorporation of mm-hmm. uh, rights guaranteed in the Bill of Rights. He really wanted the Fifth Amendment to, right. to be incorporated to apply against state uh, action as well as the federal government action. Right. And so he was going to be a tricky vote. And so the
the whole process of deciding this case was really the process of Tom Clark keeping those four justices mm -hmm. who said that this really was a vehicle for, to extend the exclusionary rule and then winning over Justice Hugo Black. So he had that important fifth vote to turn this into a case about the exclusionary rule. So Tom C. Clark had been assigned to write the opinion in this case and he began to shape it in this different direction. And the practices in the court that these begin to get circulated among the justices right. to see who will sign on. Felix Frankfurter was infuriated, we've heard. Why? Because he had written Matt, I'm sorry, he had written Wolf. Um, the case that said the exclusionary rule does not apply to the states. And, and his case was not, about to be overturned. It was about to be overturned, and he didn't think there was good reason for it. And he knew it was going to be overturned, yeah. which is why I think he yeah. voted against review in the case. Yeah. And um, and why he himself focused on the obscenity question. And right. what, what's interesting, I have to say, about oral arguments is Kearns, he was what we call one-shotter. He had appeared before the court for the first time. Mm -hmm. He spent 16 minutes talking about the facts of the case. Right. Frankfurter was infuriated. At one point he said, can you just tell me what the issue in this case is? And he kept on asking Kearns, so are you asking us to overturn Wolfie, Colorado? And Kearns, no, no, he no, said no. no. And no, he, didn't, no. he didn't even seem familiar with the case. So Frankfurter knew something was up. In fact, he was so frustrated at one point, he just turned his back to Kearns while he was arguing the case and wouldn't listen to him any longer. But it, during oral arguments, the um, Ohio branch of the American Civil Liberties mm -hmm. Union had a lawyer who was appearing on on behalf of the ACLU. This is the first time they had done so as what's called an amicus curiae um, uh, advocate. And they argued just briefly that maybe the court should reconsider Wolfie, Colorado. Right. So it was always in the periphery, but it really wasn't straight out in front of the court as uh, as this being an exclusionary rule case until Tom C. Clark because decided the obscenity it. statute was a broad, pretty dangerous statute. I mean, it was a really broad statute. If you possessed a book that you had opened and closed really quickly and never wanted to open it again, but you knew there was obscenity in it, you could do seven years in Ohio, right. which was a lot of time. And so. under that, that Smith v. California precedent in 1959, it was a slam dunk case. It right. could be a one paragraph right. decision and instead right. it becomes this landmark Supreme Court case. Yeah. So the decision was issued by the court on June 19, 1961. Here's a snippet from what uh, Justice Tom Clark wrote in this decision, changing it into a Fourth Amendment case from the original thinking of First Amendment. He wrote, having once recognized that the right to privacy embodied in the Fourth Amendment is enforceable against the states and that the right to be secure against rude invasions of privacy by state officers is therefore constitutional in origin, we can no longer permit that right to remain an empty promise. Because it is enforceable in the same manner and to like effect as other basic rights secured by the Due Process Clause, we can no longer permit it to be revocable at the whim of any police officer who, in the name of law enforcement itself, chooses to suspend its enjoyment. Well, how many votes did it get? It got, that got four votes, but the fifth vote was provided by Justice Black, who agreed with the, the judgment, but said in his opinion, it was reliant on both the Fourth and the Fifth Amendment, not the Fourth Amendment standing alone. So it was a 5-4 decision. Mm -hmm. There were four dissenters. Mm -hmm. There was a, a, a dissent by three justices. Right. Um, it was authored by Justice Harlan, joined by Frankfurter and Whitaker, who said, 
First of all, we're surprised. We thought this was an obscenity case. Right. If this was a case about the exclusionary rule, it should have been briefed. It should have been argued. Um, and they disagreed, of course, with the outcome. And then Justice Stewart, who wrote a concurring opinion saying this, is, or wrote, wrote a memorandum, a memo, yeah. Yeah, saying this is a First Amendment case. It's a terrible uh, uh, statute. It's unconstitutional in the right. First Amendment. So it's a 5-4 case. And there is still controversy, which we're going to talk about mm-hmm. later on, among the strict constructionists oh, yeah. uh, and, and what the court did in this. And that will be our final half hour. But before we get to that, mm-hmm. Dalry Mapp's life story continues. So Dalry Mapp, the single mother, African-American from Shaker Heights, Ohio, has a major victory in the Supreme Court. What happened to her next? She does have a victory. Uh, it was short-lived. She stayed in Ohio for a couple of years and then moved to the state of New York in 1968. She moved to Cambria mm-hmm. Heights, um, where she purchased a home, and then she um, uh, purchased a furniture store. She was mm-hmm. always interested in, in business. Um, so it was in Harlem. The home was in Queens. The right. furniture store was in Harlem. Um, and she was running the furniture store. Uh, she hired a young man named Alan Lyons um, to run it, uh, to manage it. And one day, a confidential informant said that she was selling narcotics and that she was involved in right. that. So the police engaged in surveillance of her home for a number of days, a surveillance of, of Lyons. And then they got a search warrant this time, <laughs> and they uh, searched both her home and Lyons' apartment. Um, they found some narcotics in Lyons' apartment. They arrested both of them because MAP was connected to the apartment because she was helping pay the rent. Right. Um, they were released the next day. Uh, several weeks later, another confidential, they're waiting mm-hmm. for the case to go to trial. Uh, another confidential informant um, uh, said that there were stolen goods and there were narcotics in Map's home. So they, again, surveilled her right. and armed with a search warrant. They searched her home and they found the narcotics. So she was convicted of uh, possession of drugs. Uh, she received a sentence of 20 years to life. Uh, in the state of New York, uh, it was a Class A felony. It was a mandatory sentence. Mm-hmm. It was the harshest mandatory sentence at the time. Um, part of it was political. Governor Nelson Rockefeller was mm-hmm. uh, contemplating a run for the presidency, and he really pushed for these uh, real, uh, really strong um, anti-drug laws. Um, so she was convicted, and she went to prison for this very long time. Um, she went to the Correctional Institution for uh, for Women in Bedford Hills. Uh, she went in in the same way that uh, she went to court uh, for Matt v. Ohio, which is that she was uh, sure of herself. She had been involved in mm-hmm. some wrongdoing, but she was unapologetic about it. Um, and while she was in prison, she, she, her personality can, can be described just a, with a couple of anecdotes. Um, one, a few weeks before, uh, at, when she first got there, um, she, came, uh, she was coming out of her um, cell, and one of the guards said, Hey, Dolly. And she said, who are you? I don't know you from Mm -hmm. anyone on the street. You can call me Ms. Mapp. So she sort of commanded respect from the people around her. Um, And she also learned the law. She helped inmates use a law library. um, And she uh, sort of uh, tried to be her own person in prison. And there's this wonderful anecdote, um, which I think Ken Armstrong captured in a piece for the Marshall um, uh, Report, which said uh, that she wouldn't eat in the cafeteria. She she wanted her food to be brought to her because she thought eating in the cafeteria was like (sighs) pigs at a trough. And so she demanded that the food be brought to her. And she also had people sending her food because she had a very specific diet. Uh, Because, again, she very much um, uh, wanted to be her own person, and she had this certitude about her. Um, in 1980, her sentence was commuted by Governor Hugh mm-hmm. Carey, um, uh, along with 15 other inmates. Yeah. They were all people who had been uh, sentenced under these draconian laws. Um, and there's another fun anecdote, which is as she was leaving, one of the guards said, you know, Ms. Mapp, we will never forget you. And her response was, do you know something? 
I've forgotten you already. <laughs> and that is how she left prison. <laughs> Uh, she returned to Queens. She was involved in um, a, a, a organization called the Voluntary, uh, Volunteer Attorney Service Team, where they provided legal advice to inmates. Um, she had a number of business ventures, real okay. estate. She was a seamstress, so she was engaged in uh, um, a little bit of that trade. And she was always looking for ways to improve herself. And so she really left prison the same way she entered prison, the same way she acted when those police broke into her home and uh, went under her blouse for the alleged warrant, mm -hmm. which is somebody who really commanded your respect. And she was very unapologetic about the choices she had made. She's like, as you saw in the clip, I've lived my life as I see fit. So she uh, got involved in legal advocacy, but did she become, uh, did she make her, her public career off of the MAP decision? Did she go out speaking about it and participate in conferences, you know, the, the really become a spokesperson for her case. She did it a little bit, and, and not, not too much. Early on, she did it more than later in her life when I met her and when I interviewed her in 2004 and 2005. But she did. She was invited to law schools right. because she had, she had a fantastic so story to tell. But I would say that most of her work was somewhat behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. um, and we, she clearly knew that she was associated with the case and that people wanted to speak to her, including me, because of her association with the case. But she wasn't as public as some people yeah. may. And, and it was hard for me to get to her. And um, in fact, when I reached out to her, I'd, I'd written her several letters, and then she invited me to her home. I was 30 minutes late to her house. She was waiting for me on her porch. <laughs> she was spitting nails. She was just so upset. Uh, she said she didn't want to talk to me, um, and that I really uh, had to cajole her mm -hmm. into talking to me about the case. I told her about the importance of it and how we really needed to talk about this um, in order to get her story out to this new generation. And finally, she relented. I think she felt sorry for me um, and let me speak to her. And then I had several uh, interviews with her later. So in our final half hour, we're going to talk about the legacy of uh, this decision on policing locally, but also on federal law and subsequent cases, cases. Before we do that, a couple more calls. Let's talk to Bruce in Arlington, Texas. Hi, Bruce. You're on the air. Hi, thanks for having me on. Um, from my understanding, the uh, MAP versus Ohio and the uh, Road v. Wade uh, established an inherent right to privacy, but some justices and legal scholars disagree with that right. Um, from my perspective, you can't have the freedom of speech or thought without the right to privacy. I want to know what the line of reasoning pursued by others to refute that idea. Thanks. Thank you. So I, th I think it's always a misnomer when we talk about the right to privacy in the Fourth Amendment, because there is no specific substantive right to privacy that's articulated in the Fourth Amendment. The Fourth Amendment says you have a right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures, um, but that's not necessarily the same thing as saying you have a right to privacy. So I think that it's important to differentiate the two. And the court has come to this right to privacy rather slowly. Um, there's a case called Griswold versus Connecticut, where you had Justice Douglas sort of create the right to privacy out of whole cloth out of, I think, the first the third, the fourth, and the fifth amendment, and the ninth amendments to the Constitution. And then in Roe v. Wade, you actually had the privacy right articulated a little bit more clearly in the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. And so that's where we sort of see the court returning for this generalized right to privacy. So it's the 14th Amendment due process clause, and in fact the liberty component of the due process clause, rather than the Fourth Amendment. I mean, the only, the only um, slight modification I would make of that is that I think that the court has recognized 
particularly through incorporation, that there is a, at the core of the Fourth Amendment, is a concern for privacy. Sure, um, uh, especially in your home and exactly. on your person. They have all exactly. that, yes. Robert is in New York City. Hey, Robert. Hello, hi. Uh, while I've been on hold, you've covered the issue that I wanted to uh, <laughs> ask about and inquire further about, uh, that to distinguish that in the MAP case, uh, it was the American Civil Liberties Union, and particularly Bernie Berkman, Mm -hmm. who did the yeoman's work on the Fourth Amendment issue, and it was Kearns who confined himself to the First Amendment issue, the pornograph alleged pornography. Uh, and my com if the people want to comment further, and uh, Berkman was looking for this case. Berkman and Day, Jack Day, his partner, they were looking for this case for a very long while that they knew that Walt Wolf could be overruled, and then when they found uh, Dolly Ray Mapp's case, hooray, uh, and it was Berkman who did all the work on the Fourth Amendment issue. And that is my comment. And if yeah. the commentators want to add to that, I'm sure they can. Thanks yeah, very much. Yeah. yeah, as I mentioned earlier, he, it was a, a group of three attorneys um, from the Ohio Civil Liberties Union that really did the work on the amicus mm -hmm. brief of this case. And it is true that Berkman wanted the Fourth Amendment issue to be argued. And there is that paragraph where he is asking the court to overturn Wolfie Colorado mm -hmm. in the brief. But it really was one paragraph out of 20 pages of the amicus brief, this friend of the court brief. He wanted it. You're absolutely right. He wanted it to be longer. He had argued with his colleagues about having mm -hmm. that be the focus of the brief, but they really also wanted to tease out this whole obscenity issue as well, and so that dominated it. But Berkman stood up. The first thing he said was, we want to overturn Wolf v. Colorado, right. and he actually saved Kearns because Kearns right. was floundering so much on this issue. Um, and he also, uh, and I think that, that this is implicit in your statement, he's the one who asked to have uh, time at oral arguments before the U.S. Supreme Court. Right. It hadn't been done before right. that a member who had written an amicus brief would actually do the argument. And Berkman took it upon himself to contact Kearns and then to the right, the U.S. Supreme Court, and to say to the Supreme Court, I'd like to present oral arguments. Mm -hmm. And they said yes. So it really was important for that reason as yeah. well. Larry is in Naples, Florida. Hi, Larry. Hey, I would like for you to comment from the uh, starting in Week's decision, which brought about the one-set verdicts, and which the police could do no wrong. And I think the Supreme Court, starting with Week's, going all the way up to MAP, uh, was the start of judicial activism. I'd like for you to address that, and then that map was brought about to the states by the 14th Amendment, which has led us where we are now. Is that not correct? Uh, thanks very much. Was this seen as the start of judicial activism? It was argued in some so, of our earlier landmark cases. I think that the court uh, was certainly a, uh, a more activist court than previous courts had been in the liberal direction. Um, um, and so I think that the Warren Court definitely was seen as starting the, the criminal procedure revolution and created a number of cases that expanded the rights of criminal defendants. I would not say it is fair to say that all of the decisions out of that court expanded rights. I think there were a number of very significant decisions out of that court that significantly curtailed um, the rights of criminal defendants in ways that have repercussions to this day and that much of the unwinding of, of civil, liberty, civil liberties that we see in future courts, in the Burger Court, in the Rehnquist Court, and courts beyond that, 
they find their footing actually in language from the Warren Court. Senator Patrick Leahy is the senior Democrat in the Senate Judiciary Committee. We spoke to him and other members, both Democrats and Republicans, in preparation for this series. We're going to show you a clip now from Senator Leahy on the impact of MAP on searches today. The idea that we have a, a blanket sweep of all of us, in the long run, that's going to hurt us. That's not going to, that's not going to make us safer. Again, we have to go back to the rules. The example I used is this. If you had papers in your desk at home, uh, you fully expect that if the police want to come into your home and look at those papers, they're going to have to get a warrant and to come in and look at them. Now, if you're holding it, those same files in the, in the cloud, you've got it uh, somewhere in the Internet or you're communicating like that, shouldn't they have to follow the same rules? It is your privacy we're talking about. If you collect everything, in many ways you have nothing. Uh, learn to do better, better analysis of it. Uh, we had at that time in 9-11, we had very few people uh, looking at this material who could speak the languages of those who were in, in the wiretaps. Uh, we've learned from that. But it doesn't make us less safe to have to follow the rules of law. So Senator Leahy, in the broad scope of thinking about how important warrants are to our civil society, mm -hmm. comments on that? I think they're extremely important. And I think that the, the more we um, sort of set up uh, liberty and safety as oppositional um, um, ideas, the more distracted we get from the real issue. There is not inconsistency between liberty and safety. Um, and, and there is no reason for us to believe that we cannot have police forces and, and law enforcement with limited powers, uh, limited constitutional powers that are still able to keep us safe. I think, you know, Carolyn mm -hmm. was talking about it a little bit earlier about the statistical studies and what they have shown with regard to the, quote, cost of the exclusionary rule. And they are not as significant as they are made out to be. Um, there are not significant numbers of lost prosecutions or lost convictions as a result of forcing the police to play by the rules. Now, as you both referenced, the court continues to take up these cases about the rights of uh, the accused and mm -hmm. about warrants. Here's just a few of them. Uh, at Stafford United School District versus Reading in 2009, which is involved strip search of a middle schooler, mm -hmm. Florida versus Jardines in 2013, dog sniffing at a home. Maryland versus King, also 2013, collection of DNA at a lawful arrest. City of Los Angeles versus Patel in 2015, warrantless search of hotel registries. And as our two guests suggested, there have been limitations placed on the MAP decision over time. Next up, we're going to listen to three Supreme Court justices, two current, one former, uh, and their thoughts on this issue. We're going to begin with Justice's former justice, but sitting at the time, Souter and Sotomayor on what's called the good faith exception. Let's listen. If the mistake which leads us to conclude that there has been a Fourth Amendment violation was a mistake not made by the police, but, my, but made by the, by the judge or magistrate who issued the warrant, that should not preclude the introduction of evidence on the theory described in MAP v. Ohio. If the mistake is not the police's mistake, then you gain nothing uh, in, in influencing police conduct by keeping the evidence out. 
what doctrine it underlays is that you don't want the police violating your constitutional rights without a good faith basis, without probable cause. And that's why you have a judge make that determination. That's why you require them to go to a judge. And so what I had to look at was whether we should make the police responsible for what would have been otherwise a judge's error, not their error. Mm -hmm. They gave everything they had to the judge. And they said to the judge, I don't know, even if they thought they knew, that isn't what commands the warrant. It's the judge's review. So interesting, Renee Hutchins, that these were coming up as questions this late uh, follow, mm-hmm. following after MAP at both the Supreme Court level and um, perhaps more likely at an appellate federal level. Right. Your thoughts on that? So I, the good faith exception, the thing that I think it's important to remember about it is it was intended to encourage the police to use warrants. That was the point of the good faith exception. The, the, the officers in Leon, which is the case that created the exception, um, had what they thought was a good warrant. It turned out not to be a good warrant. And so the court, in encouraging them to rely on warrants in the first instance, said, look, if you rely in good faith upon a search warrant that you think is a good warrant, we're not going to penalize you for that by excluding the evidence. But since Leon, the the exception has been expanded out and out and out and out and out to include cases that have nothing to do with warrants at all. So it includes, you know, if the police rely upon a, a database that the court isn't maintaining, the good faith exception will apply. If they are relying upon a database that they aren't properly maintaining, the good faith exception will apply. Um, so it's just, it has, it has ballooned out beyond what I think were its original boundaries. I think it's important to note why this has happened. If you look at the Weeks decision in 1914, mm-hmm. which first uh, explored the exclusionary rule uh, with the federal government, and then the MAP decision, they relied on a different foundation than these subsequent cases. The reason for it, according to the courts, was that it was part of the Fourth Amendment. You right. couldn't really have the Fourth Amendment without this ancillary rule, which says if you obtain illegal evidence, it should be excluded. And then also what uh, Renee referred to earlier was this rationale about judicial integrity. The courts saying that one of the reasons why we're not going to allow illegal evidence is we don't want to be party to allowing illegal evidence in trial. We are a court of law. We comply with the Constitution. And those rationales have given way to this idea that you only exclude evidence in cases which deter police misconduct. And the argument about the good faith exception are that you're not going to deter police misconduct. So when you take away the reasoning and you bring it to this idea about deterrence and this sort of utilitarian cost-benefit analysis as to whether or not police misconduct is deterred, you've completely eviscerated the foundation upon which the exclusionary rule relies. And it's also led to many other exceptions and an overall dismantling of the Fourth Amendment. And so I think people need to understand how these foundations have affected the court's jurisprudence and some of the dangers that um, we incur when the court sort of changes its mind about how it decides cases. But in fact, strict constructionists have always had a problem with this yeah. decision. And, uh, and, and when Edwin Meese was attorney general, mm-hmm. he uh, hoped to overturn MAP. He oh, looked yeah. for vehicles to do that. We also have a clip from the sitting chief justice, John Roberts, where he talks about some of his views of the MAP decision. Mm-hmm. Our cases have applied what is known as the exclusionary rule, under which illegally seized evidence cannot be admitted in court. This is a judicially created rule. It is not an individual right, but instead aims to deter violations of the Fourth Amendment. 
The idea is that if the police cannot use evidence from an illegal search, there is likely to be fewer illegal searches. Now, given that purpose, our precedents establish that the rule does not apply when it will not result in real deterrence or when the benefits of any deterrence are outweighed by the cost. That cost, of course, is the prospect that the guilty and possibly dangerous will go free. Your comments, please. Well, I completely disagree with him, obviously, um, uh, based on what I said earlier, because you hear in his comment um, this embracing of this deterrence yeah. rationale and the idea that the um, rule is judicially created. But as Yale Kamisar said, is a great mm-hmm. Fourth Amendment scholar, give me any sort of rule that isn't judicially created. All of these rules are judicially created. Um, and so I, I think that what Roberts misses is the years between um, weeks and map where it was really about how this is constitutionally required. And um, Tom Clark had this great quote once where he was criticizing Colorado, a uh, Wolfie Colorado, and he said that the case was like an empty gesture. He said, it's mm-hmm. like what Chief Justice Hughes used to say. It's no use at all to have a constitution. It's pretty. It's got fringes around it. But it is just a piece of paper unless you live by it and you enforce it. And that's what map and the Fourth Amendment is all about, Mm -hmm. which is that you need to have that exclusionary rule or remedy, as some have constructed it, in order to realize the promise of the Fourth Amendment. If you don't have it, then what you have are options of people maybe uh, filing a civil suit against the police, and they're inevitably going to lose. Having the police police themselves, which may or may not work. I think we've seen evidence to the latter. Or having prosecutors go after police who've misbehaved, which also doesn't happen very often. So really, there isn't any other way that you could really realize the promise of the Fourth Amendment without the rule. So while he's correct about the court's jurisprudence during the Burger courts and during the Rehnquist courts, which has seen this evisceration mm-hmm. of the rule and also the Fourth Amendment, um, I think he's wrong in terms of how it came about and how it was originally described. Okay, so we have about 12 minutes left. I want to use that to take a few more calls, but also uh, talk about the impact of the MAP decision on policing in America. Mm-hmm. We're going to start with that uh, by listening to uh, Chief Justice Earl Warren shortly before he retired from the court. And as we told you at the beginning, this was the first in a series of cases the court took on that really had to do with criminal rights and overall was seen as making many changes to uh, police procedures, criminal rights, and criminal prosecution in the country. So we're going to listen to Earl Warren talking about that. And then you'll also hear from retired Cleveland police sergeant Robert Cermak on changes he saw at his level to police procedures. Let's listen. I think that uh, the work of the police has been uh, improved through the years. I think it is on a higher higher uh, standard now than it was when, when I first went into the uh, law enforcement business almost 50 years, uh, 50 years ago. And... Uh, <clears throat> I'm very hopeful that it will continue to to improve through the years. I, I, I was privileged to be able to teach at uh, the police academy here in Cleveland and, and at uh, Tri-C, and part of what I taught was search and seizure. And you always had to go back to MAP. That was the, the bottom line. That was the, the foundation of where we had to go from this point forward. Um, and it was uh, it was very important that the reasoning behind the the MAP decision was conveyed to the new officers so that they would understand how important it was to follow these rules. I I think as a result of the MAP case, it's it's really forced police officers uh, to work a little harder, 
to, uh, to be a little bit more conscientious and in the long run, whether we liked the decision or didn't like the decision, it really made us better cops. Uh, when we went to court with that information, when we went to court with the evidence uh, obtained with that search warrant, we were much more likely to get convictions. So, Renee Hutchins, this is your area of expertise. Did it make uh, the police work harder uh, but also be more constructive when they went to court? So I think what we found is that there was increased professionalism of the police forces, um, that definitely to the extent that police forces were bound by the exclusionary rule, they did have to up their game, so to speak, right? They did have to become more professionalized. I think that the one comment I did want to make, though, is that the, the rights protected by the Fourth Amendment are not criminal rights. The, the expansions that were were uh, seen under the Warren Court were not expansions of criminal protections. They're all of our rights. They're all of our protections. And so the limits that we can't confuse the message with the messenger. Um, and so the message is a fabulous message. It's about, you know, limitations on arbitrary police authority, which affects you and me as much as it affects the guy on the corner with a bag of heroin in his pocket. Um, he just happens to be the messenger and we can't dislike him and therefore dislike the rights that he's protecting for all of us. So, I completely agree. And I always tell my students, these are rights that everybody has. And, and it's yeah. really, we forget about that because we focus on the criminal. And I think the, the critics of the rule do so as well. Yeah. And, and that gives them ammunition. But uh, when it was first handed down, there was a tremendous outcry from law enforcement about the coddling of the criminals, handcuffing the police. But what we found is that they learned uh, yeah. to train themselves. And so it did increase the professionalism. And there was a study in the 1988 by the American Bar Association, which concluded, and this is police officers, judges, prosecutors, that the exclusionary rule didn't hurt yeah. the administration of justice. It didn't lead to an increase in crime. It wasn't an obstacle to law enforcement. That essentially you could have it and still have effective law enforcement. And so most law enforcement officers, they don't maybe embrace the exclusionary rule, but they know how to operate <laughs> right. within the bounds of it. And frankly, they know how to operate within the bounds of these uh, limitations of the exclusionary rule so they can learn to operate around it. And one thing I have to add about the Earl Warren quote, quote he's right about police professionalism, but what he also said um, in his autobiography is he said you have to look at these decisions, including Miranda, which you'll speak about later, um, as, as, and also look at how the court looked at issues of race and inequality um, in communities which were targeted by the police because they were predominantly communities of color. So I think it's important that you make that link um, in the criminal mm -hmm. procedure revolution and what was happening in, in these communities and the war, of course, emphasis on race. Which yeah. brings us right up to contemporary times where we're also discussing police tactics oh, yeah. in this country. So yeah. this is a very fresh issue for us again in, in that regard. Definitely. Uh, Wild and Wonderful is on Twitter and asks, which of the exceptions to the exclusionary rule are most commonly used? Inevitable discovery, independent source? That's a question. That's tough to answer. It is probably attenuation of the taint. So there are three exceptions to the exclusionary rule in addition to good faith. And so if the police can prove that the bad act, the illegal unconstitutional act that happened is so far removed from the discovery of the evidence, that's considered attenuation and that will be an exception to the exclusionary rule. Um, inevitable discovery requires quite a bit more uh, in order to establish it. So the police really have to be able to show that they would have n almost certainly discovered the illegally gotten evidence anyway. And so it is a bit more difficult for them to demonstrate um, um, uh, in, um, um, 
inevitable discovery. Another option is independent source. So if they can show, Mm -hmm. sure, we busted down the door of this person's house and got the evidence, but we had an anonymous tip that we would have been able to, so we would have been able to get to this evidence in another way. Um, That is another way for them to get to it. It's difficult to say which they use most frequently. I would say inevitable discovery is probably the toughest. So Joe Paulson wants to go back to the decisions rendered by Mm -hmm. the court and ask, why did the dissenters in Matt v. Ohio concur in the judgment on First Amendment grounds? Stewart's memorandum basically did that. Why didn't they concur? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. I I know I didn't explore that in my book. I think it was... There was not a First Amendment basis for the majority decision. So the majority decision was entirely about the Fourth Amendment, not about the First Amendment. I thought he was asking why they didn't join the concurring opinion. Uh, On First Amendment grounds. Why did they join in that aspect? I think he was asking about the dissenters. So why didn't the dissenters find common ground on the First Amendment aspects of the case? Because he didn't write a concurrence. He wrote a memorandum and said that he was not joining the opinion or concurring in any aspect of the opinion. He just thought there was, yes, there was this other reason to get there. it was just a memo. It wasn't. Yeah, Yeah, it was sort of a unique. We don't see it. We actually don't see it very often. And so that might be part of the confusion. Yeah. All right. Let's take a call from Paul. And that's in Fort Lauderdale. Hey, Paul. Good evening. It's a pleasure listening to all of you. And, um, I have seen a few of the the programs, and I think sound decisions by the Supreme Court should be carefully protected. The MAP case and many others demonstrate how sound decisions are weakened or hollowed out by the same or subsequent courts. Mm-hmm. Sound decisions benefit the, the citizens of the country. How do you see this point? I completely agree with you. Uh, And uh, just in terms of raw numbers, I think it's really interesting to look at um, how the different courts have led to different outcomes. During the Warren Court era, about two-thirds of the decisions actually were what we would call pro-defendant. They favored the person who was bringing up um, the, the challenge, and they may be considered liberal. And then of the 200 search and seizure cases that were decided during the tenure of Berger and also Rehnquist, <laughs> about 75% of them favored the state. And so you see a real reversal in terms of the win-loss rate, I think at the cost of liberty of personal individuals. And we're seeing this trend continue although a little less so under the Roberts Court. So I I completely agree with you. We have three more cases in our Landmark series. It's a 12-week program, and if you just joined us along the way, we did produce a brief book that's available to you that outlines all of the cases. It's written by veteran Supreme Court journalist Tony Morrow. It's available on our website for just $8.95. We'll get it out to you quickly. And uh, during the next few months, this series is likely to re-air in its entirety. So Uh, You can watch it on on television in the weeks ahead and have the book ready for you. It also is archived on our website each program after it airs, so there's an opportunity to watch it online. So if that book is of interest to you, it's easily available, and we'll get it to you pretty quickly. (laughs) Just a couple of minutes left. I'm going to take two more calls, and that will be it. And uh, next is Pete in Fortson, Georgia. Hi, Pete. Hello. Hi. Hi. Thank you for this program. I really enjoy it. I try to catch it uh, whenever I see it. Um, my question was about, I guess, what we can expect in the Fourth Amendment jurisprudence. There were some comments about how the exclusionary rule is being now considered a judge-made rule, and there's a lot of exceptions to it. What do you guys think about the warrant preference in the Fourth Amendment? Is that also going to be under attack um, going forward? And... Um, 
because, of course, there's that that tension in the Fourth Amendment between, you know, a, a preference for the warrant or just a reasonableness requirement. So thanks very much. That's a great question. Um, if you look at the history of Fourth Amendment cases, including, of course, ones about the exclusionary rule, you see reflected in the court what you refer to as a warrant preference construction of the Fourth Amendment. And what that construction means is the, the idea that searches that are accompanied by a warrant are considered reasonable, and searches conducted mm-hmm. without a warrant are considered unreasonable, with a few exceptions, right. which the early court saw were uh, sort of carefully delineated, hot pursuit, things like that. But what we've seen really since, the, I would say, the the Burger Court was the court embracing this uh, generalized reasonableness construction of the Fourth Amendment, which is not focusing on the warrant, but rather focusing on whether or not the police um, officer's actions are considered reasonable. And so this has actually done more damage to the Fourth Amendment than what we've been talking about today, because if you're just saying that law enforcement has to show that they've done something reasonable, uh, that's a very low threshold. And that is what the court has embraced today. And you're certainly seeing it with the Roberts Court, and it started with the Burger Court. It actually started with the Warren Court, with Terry versus Ohio. They sort of really set this ship on that course. Yeah, 1967, absolutely. I find myself with only 30 seconds left. I apologize to our final caller. We'll tell you that in uh, two programs from now, we're going to be dealing with the Miranda decision, also by the Warren Court, which was another in these series of cases. And we're going to spend our final half hour in that program talking about the Warren Court overall and their approach to these uh, these reviews and what it has done uh, to the judicial process and talk about that in a big picture way. So we hope you'll be with us for that program. So as we close here, I want to ask you about Dowry Map mm-hmm. and what people should take away from the, pa- the fact that a, uh, that a citizen like Dowry Map was the focus of a landmark case in the Supreme Court. Well, I think the first point is that there's always going to be a story behind these cases. They involve real people with real uh, challenges, and uh, they, in the case of Dollar Map, involve people who have a lot of personal strength to really see um, a situation and to go to the courts for relief and to fight her way all the way to the Supreme Court. So it really are cases about individuals that have lasting impact upon all Americans, and, and any one of us could be that individual, although, frankly, nobody could be like Dollar Map. <laughs> And what are your final thoughts about this case and its importance? That we all have a role to play in the protection of our constitutional rights, that we all have to stand up and give voice every day to the Constitution or it ends up becoming a dead letter. And Dalry Mapp did that for all of us. Our thanks uh, to Carolyn Long and to Renee Hutchins for being our guest tonight on Map v. Ohio. And thanks, as always, to you for your questions and your comments. It really makes the program interesting. Thanks for being with us.
Our series continues next week with the Supreme Court's 1962 decision in Baker v. Carr. In that case, justices established the right of federal courts to review redistricting issues, which had previously been termed political questions outside the court's jurisdiction. The Tennessee case paved the way for the one-man, one-vote standard of American representative democracy. Find out more next Monday, live at 9 p.m. Eastern on C-SPAN, C-SPAN 3, and C-SPAN Radio. You can also learn more about C-SPAN's Landmark Cases series online by going to cspan.org slash landmarkcases. From the website, you can order C-SPAN's Landmark Cases book, featuring background, highlights, and the legal impact of each case. Written by veteran Supreme Court journalist Tony Morrow and published by C-SPAN in cooperation with CQ Press. Landmark Cases is available for 